Good morning. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Numbers, we're going to be spending just a little bit of time there this morning looking at an account that we have just read about in our scripture reading as we read through the Bible. It is very good, before we jump into that, it's very good to see you all here this morning, especially our visitors. They're so encouraging to have you here with us, uh, knowing that there are so many other things you could have chosen to do this morning, so many other places you could have chosen to be but yet you chose the best thing. You chose to be with the saints as we gathered together here to remember the death of our Savior, the Christ. We are encouraged as we sing praises with one another, joining our hearts in unison as we offer up worship and prayers to our great God. And that worship is a subsequent behavior of those who have been impacted by the presence of God in their life. In Exodus chapter 34, we read of Moses on Mount Sinai. And when the presence of the Lord passed before him, and when God spoke to Moses, verse 8 tells us that Moses fell on his face and worshipped him. Now maybe we have never had a moment quite, quite like that, however. A moment where we found ourselves within the very presence of the Lord, able to speak to Him, able to see His presence. But while we may not have had that sort of moment, to be impacted by the presence of God is seen in the lives of countless, countless others. And as Paul spoke to the men of Athens at the Areopagus, he said that it is God's design that man would reach out for him, that man would seek him, and that he is not far from us. So, you know, maybe you haven't had a Mount Sinai experience. In fact, you shouldn't have a Mount Sinai experience. God doesn't communicate to man in these ways any longer. As Hebrews, uh, as Hebrews tells us, he has spoken one time through his son. Even so, that doesn't mean that we are no longer affected by His presence in our lives. A remarkably unremarkable account of this is found here in Numbers chapter 27. And it is with these five daughters of Zelephahad. Now, I will go ahead and say right now that no, I am not pronouncing that name right. But if I did pronounce that name right, it would sound like I was probably coughing up a hairball. So that's as close as we're going to get to the correct pronunciation of that name, Zelophehad. We read in this account here a very, as I said, remarkably unremarkable story. Let's read together verses 1 through 11. It says, Then the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Mashur, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, came near, and these are the names of his daughters. Mahalah, Noah, Haglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. They stood before Moses, and before Eleazar the priest, and before the leaders and all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. Yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. But he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our, of our father be withdrawn from among his family because he has no sons? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. 
You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their fathers to them. Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his nearest relative and his own family. And he shall possess it, and it shall be a statutory ordinance to the sons of Israel, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the same thing I was thinking. As we read through this, you're thinking, wow, that is the most intriguing story in the entire Bible, right? No, we, we, <laughs> we know that this, this, this is not the most riveting story ever written. It's not a real page turner. But what this account lacks in excitement and in action it is full of bold characters. Bold characters who trust in God and in His grace that is shown to them. I want to begin by noticing a few things about these five daughters of Zelephahad. The first thing that I want to notice is their view of sin. Our view of sin has become increasingly softened in the world today. Oftentimes you'll hear referred to as a mistake, a shortcoming. A poor choice. And I want to go ahead and say right now, none of, these, none of these descriptions of sin are incorrect. Absolutely, sin is a mistake. It is a poor choice. It is to fall short of perfection. But sin is far worse than, than just these descriptions. This is on the ever more common occasion that sin is viewed as just a bad thing. But after all, we are just humans. And sin's going to happen. But that is not the view of sin that these daughters had. Their view of sin, notice how they come and make no excuse for the sin of their father. Now we exactly, what exactly he may have done is not described here, but it is very likely that he died along with many others because of the hard hearts of the people. Instead of trusting in God, instead of taking the land promised to them, they trusted in the people and they allowed their fear to control them. Now it would have been a very terribly difficult ordeal to stand before all these people and proclaim trust in God when so many of them were saying, no, it can't be done. The, the cities are full of giants and the fortified walls to the heavens. It can't be done. It would have been ter very, terribly difficult for Zelophehad to, to stand up in that time. Joshua and Caleb did. Joshua and Caleb exemplified this. They were even in danger of being stoned to death because of their stance. And these daughters could have easily said, our father just did what everyone else was doing. Our father wanted to stand up, but he was up against the odds. Our father didn't really feel that way. He was just scared of the people. But no, they don't make any excuses for their father. They say, our father died in the wilderness for what? For his own sins. In this we see that they recognize some key things about sin. Number one, sin brings about loss. The father died in the wilderness for his sin. The decision made not to enter the land and to take it was a very costly decision. Thousands died in the subsequent years of wandering throughout the wilderness. This has been the case since sin first entered the world. 
from the fall of man to today. One thing is certain about sin. Romans 6 verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. But it wasn't just death that it brought. Because it also brought consequences. At this point, these five daughters were in danger of losing the promised land. The census that we read about over in, verse 20, in chapter 26, all those names and numbers and all that is going on, we think, what's the purpose of all this? Well, that was recorded. Of, it was a recording of Moses giving the census to take a number of the people for the purpose of dividing up the land amongst them. One of the things they were going to notice in the census that all of the people from the, all of the men who had, who had rebelled against God, who had not trusted in Him, and, and caused this wandering, all of them had died, and the land was being divided up amongst the ones that were left. These daughters, though, having no father, they were then not counted amongst the children of Israel. Not only had sin left them without a father, how terrible a consequence that is, but its consequence was nearly to the point of leaving them without a people. Again, even though not held responsible for the sins of their parents, very often its consequences are passed down to those that we love. We need to see sin like this today. We need to have these same views today. When dealing with temptation in our own lives, over in James chapter 1, we talked about this not too long ago. James chapter 1 and verse 15 talks about the birth of sin and its result. <clears throat> James chapter 1, and let's start in, in verse let's start in verse 12. It says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, verse 15, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. But then as we continue on, let's look at verse 18. We see that death, the, the, death is the result of the birth of sin. But in verse 18, James goes on to record, In the exercise of his will, exercise of God's will, God, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. Notice there then, in verse 18, that it was God's will that we would be brought forth to be a first fruits amongst His creation. God's desire for us then is to be creations born of His will and to be cherished by Him. But sin brings forth death. We can never be living to, for God, living to God's desire, if we have sin in our lives. It eradicates our relationship with Him. We cannot be in Christ and in sin at the same time. 1 John 3, verse 5 says, You know that He appeared in order to take away sin, and in Him there is no sin. But also, we understand that point usually all too well, but also, we need to remember that we visit the consequences of our sins upon others. Now this is obvious in certain sins. When you look at something like suicide, and the, the hole that that leaves is a family member mourns that uh, the family mourns the loss of that particular member, and that member is not there anymore. And the consequence is there. The consequence being a member being away from the family, or adultery and divorce, leaving homes broken, leaving children with distorted views of love and of marriage. But it's also true with other sins. 
sins such as faithfulness, or faithlessness, I should say, being unzealous, having doubts and fears. These contribute to our children, to our spouses, to even other relationships of people who see us. Maybe people look at us and know, you know, that Kyle, he's a good person because he goes to church. I watch that person. I see what he does. You know, one thing I notice, I notice he has, he has a lot of doubts about things. He's all the time worried. He just all the time making himself sick, wringing his hands. He doesn't really have a lot of excitement about being a Christian, kind of a hermit, just kind of sticks to himself. You know, maybe even every now and then I see him cursing or maybe going out and drinking. But you know what? I know he's a Christian. And if it's good enough for him, it must be good enough for me. We see consequences of our sin passed down to other people. Sin reaches so much farther than we oftentimes consider, and its impacts are both deadly and wide-reaching. It's also important to consider that they had more than just a view of sin. More than just a view of sin is seen by these girls. They were also, it's important for us to consider what they were pleading for. What was their plea? And again, what we've already noticed, their plea wasn't an acquittal of their father's sin. This is made clear in the statement that he died for his sins. They had a very clear view of that. Rather, they were asking for possession in the land of Canaan against, amongst their brethren. Now notice something. If they had had a brother, if they had had a family member, That, that they could have fallen under, then they wouldn't have no need to make such a request. And their request would have been very selfish in nature. And Jesus deals with this over in Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. He's dealing with a similar scenario. When someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, man who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you. And then he goes on to, to denounce covetousness and, and warn about guarding your heart against greed. And you know what? When we read that, it does sound a little similar to what's going on here. Moses, give us our inheritance. Moses, give us what's rightfully ours. But that is so far from what their cry, what their plea truly was. Their request was not give us our stuff. Their request was a cry for mercy. Their request was a cry for salvation. Give us possession in the land. They were without representation. Not counted amongst those who would inherit the land. And even though having done nothing to deserve this, the sin was on their father and it was not the type of sin. And notice they pointed that out. Not the type of sin held against the children, such as the rebellion of Korah that was visited upon the whole family. Yet here we find these five daughters facing the very real possibility that they soon may no longer have a place to live, may no longer have a place to belong. They were without hope. They would be without hope. They would be without, without anything. But they believed in God. That much was true. They trusted in God. And if they had that, a belief in God, a trust in God, if they had that much, then we should just know that things were just going to be alright, right? That's the popular view today. 
you just have to believe. You just have to trust. But here, like so many other scriptures, we see that there was a need for more than just believing in God. They needed, they needed to act on that belief. They could have followed as the conquest of the land began. And they could have hoped that maybe someone, somewhere would see them and think of them and go, maybe, maybe we need to do something about these five daughters. And you know what? Maybe they would have. Maybe they would have done that. But they saw the need to act. Because there was a fear there. Fear that they would not receive what they had traveled so very far to receive. There was also trust there to go before Moses and Eleazar and the leaders as five daughters. This is an insignificant group going before not only the majority, but a very powerful majority at that. Remember, remember some of these men that they're going up against include Eleazar, whose son Phineas had impaled a man and a woman because of the sin they were in. And while these daughters knew they were, they were in the right, that still would have been a very difficult group to go before and make this petition. But notice this. Notice this then. They are now in the same situation their father had been in in so many years before. Facing the possibility that he would not be able to possess the land promised to him because of the great and mighty people that stood in his way. He listened not to the words of his God, but rather to the words of the people as they said, we can't do it. And here we have these five daughters who have seen the the, the sin that their father committed. They have seen it for what it is. They have seen the consequences that it brought and they have learned from their father's sins. They have put their trust in the Lord and said this possession is bigger than the fear of going before this mighty assembly. This is bigger than whatever fear might have crept in their minds to do nothing. And so they act. They act on that and it's very reminiscent to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, which tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now they certainly didn't save themselves, but they saw this as something that was worthy of their efforts to strive for. With fear, not only from the sense that they were women with no representation, women coming to a meeting of of men and powerful men at that, but fear of what life would be like without that possession. That is more than just being afraid. That is respect for the situation that they are in. Now again, too often today, we don't look at ourselves or we don't look at the lost and really fear and respect the situation that we could be in. We don't respect the danger of those walking in error away from the Lord and the punishment that is reserved for them. Maybe we look at them and we say, hopefully they'll figure it out. But how will that happen? How will that happen if if, if we never tell them? Maybe we just believe that one day someone will say something to them. And maybe so, but brother, but sister, why can't you be that someone? And maybe it is you that is lost. Maybe it is you that is not counted as one who will receive a possession in that promised land. How does that make you feel? Are you content as the father was to listen to the world, to just say where you are and say to yourself, it's it's, it's not worth it. It's too much of a battle. Or what about the daughters who saw where they were and saw the need to act and said to themselves, it is worth it. It's worth everything that I might lose to attain this possession. 
But again, as I mentioned, they saw that need and they acted, but they did not save themselves. It would be good to look at one last point. Because even though they saw the importance, and even though they thought it was worthy, and even though they acted, the decision was based solely upon God's grace. Notice Moses Moses didn't hear their petition and say, you know what? You know what? That sounds like a really good idea, girls. There's a lot of people who died in the wilderness, and I'm willing to bet that you girls aren't the only ones that are in this certain predicament. We need to do something about that. No. No, that is not what Moses did. Had that been the case, had that been the case, then we could say that they argued a flawless point proved their view, and won their salvation. But that's not what Moses said. Moses knew his thoughts didn't matter in this case. He knew there's only one who could decide this case. He takes it before the Lord. No matter what we do, if we were to argue a very logical case, if we obey to the utmost point, we are baptized and we confess and we repent. And we show up to every service, every single one, and we help every member that we can possibly ever help. No matter how amazing of a superstar Christian we are, we are still relying on God's grace to save us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Not only would they have been lost for doing nothing. Certainly. Certainly, if they just sit back like their father, we see the consequences of that. But even more so, they would have no hope if God had done nothing. And it is this knowledge that God has done something which He did not have to do that should drive our desire to respond and to obey. Again, some claim it's God's free gift. That's what Romans 6.23 said. Remember, the wages of sin, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And therefore, therefore, because it is the free gift, we should just rejoice that it was given and bask in all its glory. Why didn't Moses then say to these daughters, don't worry about it. None of us are getting into that land without God. Why didn't Moses just say, acknowledge that it is God's grace that is bringing us into the promised land and look confidently for that to happen. Just sit back and wait for Him to do it. You see, Moses, he also understood something. He certainly understood that they couldn't do this without God. He knew if God wanted, He could take them into that land that day. He could wipe out all the inhabitants from the land. With a snap of His finger, He could even make them their own land. Wherever He wanted to put them there, He, he had the mighty power of God and yet recognized their need for Him. But Moses also saw the need for strict obedience. That's exactly what we read about in verses 12 through 14 of Numbers chapter 27. Let's continue on. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up to this mountain of Abram and see the land which I have given to the sons of Israel. When you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother was. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water. These are the waters of Meribah, of Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. Moses is told 
You'll see the promised land from the mountaintop. But you're not going to enter in. Excuse me. Moses knows God. Moses knows God. And he actually sees Him and he interacts with Him on Mount Sinai. He believes in God. He believes in His power to do exactly what He desires to do. Moses has one of the most intricate relationships with God that we read about in the Scriptures, and yet he isn't entering the promised land. Why? Because of Meribah. Because even though he believed God could bring water from a rock, he didn't obey God in how to bring water from that rock. This account of the five daughters of Zelophehad reminds us that even though others before us have failed, Maybe even we come from a whole family of sinners. We can do what's right. And it's on us to do what's right. We need to see our sin, and we need to see the sin sin of others in its proper light. It's more than a mistake. It's a transgression of God's Word. It breaks our relationship with Him. It brings death, spiritually, sometimes even physically. It brings consequences down the road. Consequences that we rarely plan for. It causes us to lose our possession in the land of promise for the Christian that is heaven. And that is why they pleaded their case. Will you? Is heaven worth it to you? Enough to work out your own salvation. Even when it is difficult, you work hard. Even when you are tired, You work diligently because you have salvation in front of you. And that is a reason to fear and tremble. That is a reason to respect the situation that we are in. A situation, again, covered in God's grace. Not possible on our own, but still requiring our obedience. Do not sin like Moses. I bet if you go back, I bet if you go back and ask Moses about his mistake in striking the rock, when told to speak to it, he would tell you that it wasn't a mere mistake. I imagine if you could ask Moses that question today, he would say it wasn't a mistake. I failed to honor God. I failed to revere His commands. I failed to enter the promised land not because I made a mistake, because I chose to sin against God. This account in Numbers chapter 27, while maybe not the most captivating story to read, is nothing less than a shining reminder that God is in control. He desires our inheritance in heaven. And even though without Him it would be impossible, He still requires obedience for those who would enter in. Let's close with one last thought. One last observation about these five daughters. Their names. Mala. Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. Their names are translated, respectively, infirmity, wandering, turning about or dancing for joy, the queen, and well-pleasing or acceptable. Add to this their father, Zelophehad, whose name signifies living in a shadow of fear. Not only do these daughters serve as an example of the grace of God, 
but they also serve as a reminder of our own reviving by grace. And it can be seen through their names. Like them, we are born of the shadow of fear, being in sin, being in bondage to the fear of death and to Satan. We were sick and wandering, looking for relief, but not finding it until Christ. And through Christ, not only is there repentance, is there turning about, but there is also turning away from the fear of sickness, the sickness of sin, and the fear of wandering, which for so long described our life. We are joined to His royalty. We are made a royal priesthood to His Father, our God. And on that last day, we will be presented to Him holy and blameless, well-pleasing in His sight. Does that image portrayed and painted by these daughters, does that image describe you? Is that your desire this morning? To be found acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. It is through His grace that He has sent His Son to die for you on the cross to take your sin and to offer you forgiveness. To receive that free gift, however, He calls for obedience. Obedience in believing that He is. Obedience in confessing that, uh, Him before men. Obedience in repenting and turning away from sin and from the world and turning to Him. Obedience in baptism. And obedience in life. We are here to help you with that this morning. Look, here behind me is water. Won't you please come forward right now if there's some way in which we can help you to become a child of God or maybe having become a Christian already but you have, you have fallen away, you have allowed yourself to turn back to the world, you have let something come between you that is hindering your relationship with Christ, you have an opportunity to make that right, right now. Won't you please come forward as we stand and as we sing.